You are listening to the Hill Country Bible Church podcast. To learn more about Hill Country Bible Church, including our gathering times, visit hcbc.com. Today's message comes from Tim Hawks. Well, good morning. I want to welcome each of you to Hill Country Bible Church. And for those joining us online, you're, we welcome you. Steiner Ranch, we welcome you also. Um, I, I'm curious... Can you remember the first time, now this is for people who would say, I'm a follower of Jesus. Can you remember the first time as a follower of Jesus that you felt resistance, or maybe I could even use the term persecution for your faith? Now, as you're thinking about that, you can also be turning to John chapter 15, because we're going to pick up in our Thrive series there in John 15. Let me tell you my first experience with this. My first experience with this happened when I was a student, I was actually a freshman in high school, and the church in the little town that I grew up in had figured out a strategy to reach the whole community with the gospel. (laughs) They bought a school bus and immediately painted it red and white, because that gets people's attention, and they painted the name of the church on the side of the school bus. And they sent us as the youth group out with the bus into the community to invite people to ride the bus to church. We'd come by and pick them up if they wanted to ride, or maybe if they didn't want to come but they wanted to send their kids. And like we had this strategy, we were going to change the world through the bus ministry. So Saturday morning, we pull the bus up into this neighborhood, park it right out there so everybody could see it, and I walk up to the door of this house, and like, again, I'm a freshman in high school, so I'm knocking on the door, and when the woman comes to the door, I point to the bus, and I said, is there any chance that you or maybe your kids would like to have a free ride to church? We'd love to pick you up. We'll drive through this neighborhood on such and such a time on Sunday morning, and she said, let me just stop you right there. There are no people like you in this neighborhood. I thought, like me? Like, I'm just a person. No, 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 there's, there's nobody. Nobody in this neighborhood believes what that church believes. You're not really welcome here. And I would encourage you to take your bus and, and leave and go find a neighborhood that has people like you. I'm thinking, that's such a strange thing. I was thinking I'd get a few no thank yous, but like people like you, there's none of you here? Now, imagine my dilemma as I'm leaving the the porch of this house thinking, should I believe her or should I go next door? Like, that's the first time that I had ever experienced it, and I've experienced it a lot since then, but that was my first exposure, that there are people who are not interested in Jesus Christ, not interested in the church, not interested in an invitation. In fact, they're actually a bit antagonistic to those kinds of things. Now, fast forward 50 years, and some of you were thinking, what? You guys did What? Like you pulled a bus into a neighborhood and knocked on people's doors and invited them to ride to church. Like if I put a backyard Bible club sign in my front yard, people start writing the HOA complaining that I even did that. And that's just how far we've come over the past 50 years, right? 
where things that were normal back then are now unthinkable today because our cultures continue down a path of you keep your faith to yourself, keep your belief to yourself, keep what you believe, your, your, your relationship with Jesus to yourself, don't, don't, don't mess with us, and it's continued to progress along the way. So now we come to this Thrive series that we've been studying, the very last words of Jesus. And so in John chapter 13, Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room on Thursday night. He's been telling them, listen, I'm leaving, but I want you to know that you can thrive in my absence. In fact, I've done everything necessary to prepare you so that when I'm gone, you can continue the work, continue the message, make an impact on the world that you can continue to thrive. But now in John chapter 15, he's going to make this decided turn. And there's a reason why he's doing it. Because they've left the upper room, they're now, he's talking to them, teaching them as they walk down the Kidron Valley, up toward the Mount of Olives, toward Gethsemane, and literally within hours, Jesus is going to be betrayed, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be convicted, he's going to be beaten and tortured, he's going to be nailed to a cross, and in 24 hours from this conversation, his tortured, dead, deceased body will lie in a stone-cold tomb. And Jesus wants his disciples to know what they're getting themselves into. And so he tells them in John chapter 15, starting in verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Now, what's so interesting is, last week, as we looked at the words of Jesus, he he laid out for them that you're going to go out into the world and you're going to bear fruit. You're going to bear more fruit. You're going to bear much fruit. You're going to bear lasting fruit. It seems antithetical to say that you're going to have success in making the eternal impact in the world while the world hates you, which brings us to a very important and profound principle. And that is thriving is not the absence of resistance, but rather growing through resistance. Many of us have come to the conclusion that if God really loved us, he would make our life on earth easy, that we would never have any problems, that everything would work out, that we would have our dreams fulfilled, but God actually loves you more than that. He loves you too much to give you a worthless life of simple satisfaction and self-indulgence. God actually wants you to grow and make an impact. And we understand this concept of resistance and actually growing through resistance. We understand it on a physiological level, right? How do you get your muscles to grow? Through resistance training. You tear them down, and they build back stronger, right? Character is the same way. Character isn't forged when everything is easy. Character is formed when you decide to do the right thing, even when it's hard, and it steals your resolve and builds who you are. 
We understand that. The same thing is true when it comes to spiritual thriving. That we produce fruit not in the absence of resistance, but actually through or in the presence of resistance. And he's going to walk us through that in this passage. And so Jesus is so kind because he doesn't paint a picture that's different than reality. He actually tells us the truth about what's coming. Now, as I preach this message, a lot of you will potentially begin to connect things to the culture and places that are going on, and that's all fine, okay? That's all fine. But remember what Jesus is saying. This is about him and our relationship with him. That's where persecution that's where this resistance comes from. So keep your focus on Jesus. This isn't about me. It's not about my opinions or my take on the world. This is about what Jesus is saying. And so as we dive into this passage, we're going to see that the world hates us. And, and the way we thrive in that setting is we thrive through resistance by staying aligned with Jesus. We stay aligned with Jesus. Jesus said in chapter 15, verse 5, he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So it starts with us staying aligned with Jesus. Now, the challenge of staying aligned with Jesus is the tension or the persecution that comes from that. Look at verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. Now, the clause here, if the world hates you, is interesting. It's actually a clause used in Greek for a specific purpose. It creates the attention of the listener by putting in this feeling of, if it hates me, does it hate me, doesn't it hate me? But the clause itself grammatically always expects an affirmative response. In other words, you can literally tr translate this, since the world hates me, it's going to hate you also. Now you might ask the question, like, why does the world hate me? Why will it hate me? And uh, Jesus is going to lay it out in the passage, make it very clear. It's all about your tribe. It's all about your tribe. It's who you belong to. Belonging is everything. Look what he says in the next verse. He says, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. Right. Now, since the Tower of Babel, humanity's been dividing up into tribes. And what happens in tribalism? Like you determine that your clan, your tribe, that's the best, and the other ones are trying to get you and get your stuff, and they're not the best. And, and we have all kinds of conflict. We've always had it in the world. I mean, people try to think in terms of like there's a utopian world coming where this doesn't happen anymore, but it's always been the case. Now, if you're a student today, you probably see this in like massively on your campuses, whether high school or college. Uh, my daughters uh, both played sports in high school, and it was interesting because typically in the 5A schools around here, um, you have to pick your one sport by the time you get to high school and varsity, but when you're over six feet tall as a girl playing, um, they were both two sport athletes. And I remember my oldest one telling me, Dad, when I'm sitting in the locker room with the volleyball players, they're always talking trash about the basketball players. And I'm like, 
I know these basketball players. You guys don't even know them. Why are you talking trash about them? Walks in the locker room during basketball season, and guess who they're talking trash about? Like the volleyball players. And she's like, what's the deal? We're going to the same school. We have the same mascot. We share the same cheerleaders. Our same parents are in the stands. We're trying to beat the rest of the schools. Why are we not together? But yet, they were divided. The same thing is true in the world around us. In 1927, the famous playwright, essayist, and editor, T.S. Eliot, became a Christian, was baptized, and confirmed. Now, the group of artists that he hung out with were disgusted that one of theirs would convert to Christianity. The writer Virginia Woolf, who was the leader of that little group of artists, penned the following letter to one of her peers about his conversion. Listen to her words. I have had a most shameful and distressing interview with, Tom, with dear Tom Elliott, who may be called dead to us from this day forward. He has become a believer in God and immortality. He goes to church. I was shocked. A corpse would seem more credible than he is. I mean, there's something obscene about a living person sitting by a fire and believing in God. He's not part of our tribe anymore. He's dead to us. Now, the fact that you belong to Jesus and that you do not belong to the world creates a tension for the world. And Jesus says, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates us. Now, Peter explains how this works. Uh, look what Peter says. In 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, and remember, Jesus is on his way to the cross, He's going to suffer, and he's telling the disciples, like, you're part of my clan, you're part of my tribe, arm yourself also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. He's done. Like, he's sin, like, put that behind me. He goes on to say, as a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. In other words, once you step out of the values, the norms, and the behavior of the culture around that's focused on self-gratification and self-promotion, and you step into a life of self-sacrificial servitude for Jesus Christ, the people around you are going to go, like, who are you? Who does that? And many are going to ridicule that or persecute you. Um, that's why some of you across the course of your life have been called names like, oh, you think you're better than everybody else. Oh, you're just one of those goody-goody people. Oh, you're just one of those religious Christians. And what, where's that coming from? 
That's coming from a sense of you no longer participate in what we participate in, and therefore, like, you're not us. You're not one of us. Jesus goes on to say, Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. The disciples understood from this conversation and then from watching Jesus' crucifixion, they understood that they were going to face hardships if they truly went all in with Jesus. In fact, a couple verses later in the same chapter, Peter writes this. He says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. We just received the Lord's Supper where we focused on and celebrated Jesus' suffering to break the bonds of sin and free us to live a life that's been transformed. And he said, because of that, you're going to have the privilege of suffering in this world. If you stay aligned and follow Jesus, there's going to be some level of resistance to you. There's going to be some level that... that, that People don't get it, and sometimes they actually come at you for what you believe and how you practice your faith. Now, at this point, some people may say, well, then why would I do that? Like, why don't I just fly under the radar screen? Like, why don't I just, like, make a decision that I'm going to go along to get along? I'm going to keep my mouth shut. I'm going to kind of keep my my behavior, my faith to myself. I'm just going to pull it all in. The, the problem with doing that is then that means that you're not thriving. You're not aligned with Jesus. You're not going to bear spiritual fruit. You're not going to identify with your Savior. And when you don't do that, you live a life that actually has no eternal significance or value. You, you just, your life is just lived to get through it until the day when you stand in his presence. And so we're called upon to thrive by staying aligned with Jesus. And here's the hopeful words in this verse. He says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Then watch, if they obey my teaching, they will obey yours also. There's the fruit. There are going to be some people that push back. There are going to be other people that see how you're living and they ask you, Like, why are you different? How is this working? I see your marriage. I see your kids. I I see your priorities. I see the way you're living. I I, I admire how you're different in, in, in upholding values and moral principles and being honest and being kind and forgiving and all the things that Jesus teaches us to do. That is so different. And in the process of that, they're gonna listen. And as you share your faith, there are going to be some that come around. And so fruit bearing is not antithetical to resistance. It actually takes place through the resistance. In order to make us understand even more, Jesus goes on and he tells us that it's really not us that they're after. So it's not personal when you receive resistance for living like Jesus and explaining Jesus. Look at what he says here. 
He says in verse 21, they will treat you this way because of my name, not because of who you are, but because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. I mean, sometimes we think that if we're getting resistance, then we have to ask the question, what am I doing wrong? And if you're just flat, plain, obnoxious and rude to people, like generally speaking, that's on you, okay? That's not what Jesus is calling us to be obnoxious, rude, antagonistic, out there trying to create conflict. That's not what Jesus calls us to be. Jesus calls us to follow him, live like him. Conflict will find you, okay? Let it find you. Don't go out there to create it just by being mean-spirited. That's not what he's talking about here, okay? He goes on to explain something that is really important. It's a little bit deep and theological, so listen carefully. I'm going to unpack these next few verses for you. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. Now, Jesus is not using the word sin to talk about individual bad behaviors. Jesus is talking about sin in the big, broad category of rejecting God's ways. And what Jesus says is that when I came to earth to show them who God really is, what that did was that destroyed their own personal concept of God. You've heard people say things like, well, that's not the God that I think of, or when I think of God, it's this. Well, who cares? Like, what difference does it make what you think? If somebody came up to you and said, you know, you're not really like you. Because when I think about you, I think about you this way, this way, this way, and this way. So when I look at you, you're not who you are. You're who I say you are. I mean, that, that's the kind of thing we do with God a lot. Like, God, like people constantly making up God and throwing their concept on him. Well, well, God's an actual person, so he is who he is, right? Jesus shows them the Father, shows them that God put them on this planet, gave them life for the purpose of living according to his plan for the good and betterment of themselves and the world, and that someday we're going to give an account to God for what we did with this precious life, and people are like, oh my goodness, I don't want to be accountable to God. I want to make up my own rules for the world. And Jesus is saying, like, the reason why they feel this guilt and this antagonism is because I came and showed them reality. I showed them who God is. He goes on to say, he who, verse 23, he who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, what did you do? He says, but they have seen these miracles, and they have hated both me and my father, but this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, like, I came to earth, and I spoke the truth about the father, 
I showed them that I was God by doing supernatural things. In the course of that, I lived this incredibly beautiful life where I explained reality and truth. I gave people an opportunity to have a relationship with the loving God of the universe. And along the way, I eased their suffering and their pain as I healed and invested in people. I, I, I went for the lowly. I went after people that were the furthest from God. I did all of these things. My life was the best life that's ever been lived on the planet. And yet, by exposing the reality that without a proper relationship with the real God, that everyone would be accountable, they hate me. They hate me. They, they want nothing to do with me. And that's what's an interesting thing. You can be the most loving person, the most kind person, the most thoughtful person, the most helpful person. You can follow Jesus fully, and you can still face resistance. Now, let me give you an example of this. So probably the most public that people are aware of that's taken place in the United States has to do with a company called... Chick-fil-A. People now call it Christian chicken. Well, here's what's interesting about the company. Like, if you just look at the company itself, the company itself is a very successful business. I mean, there's certainly a product that people are interested in. In addition to that, whatever they do with their employees, they somehow become very happy people because they always say my pleasure about a hundred times whenever you're there. And what's interesting is, is they decided to honor the Sabbath and not be open on a day when they could be raking in all kinds of money simply because they wanted to make sure that their employees of whatever faith they might be or non-faith had a day off and so they closed on Sunday. But in 2012, the son of the founder, who was CEO at the time, CEO at the time, Dan Cathy, made a statement. He said that he believed in the biblical definition of family. Now, let me just interpret that to you. What that is, is code work code word where he says that what God said in Genesis 2, that marriage is between a man and a woman for life, and that's the best place for children to be born and thrive, that concept, and the world blew up to the point where universities and municipalities tried to keep Chick-fil-A from being able to have a store on their campus or in their city. This is this major controversy. In addition to that, they started looking at the charities that they supported and said that the charities that they supported, like the Salvation Army, Athletes in Action, Focus on the Family, were bigoted hate groups. And the company was supporting bigoted hate groups. And they went after them fully. Now, you'd think a statement as simple as that 
which many people would say, well, of course, that's what Christianity believes. That's what I believe. That's what the majority of the people on the planet believe. Of course, that wasn't something that just got ignored because you'd think, like, let's just ignore that and move on. That's also not something that somebody came forward with to prove that it was wrong. Like, let's bring the data forward to say what he's saying is wrong. They went after the company to try to put it out of business or make the business so bad that they would conform. Now, that's an interesting example. A company that by all, like, I mean, corporations are not necessarily in the world to do good, but it appears that that's a one that's doing pretty good for people. And one statement by the founder blows the whole thing up. Why? Why? Because in the world, telling the truth, speaking the truth, can get you in a whole lot of hot water. Now, some of you would say, well, Chick-fil-A's done pretty well from there, so I guess they thrived in the midst of resistance. And so that means, like, if I go out and make a statement, then my business is going to thrive. Don't count on it. Because <laughs> we could talk about numerous other businesses and individuals that simply spoke a statement reflecting the Bible and got pummeled for doing that. Okay? So, in the midst of that, the only way that we thrive and continue to bear fruit is by recognizing that the resistance is coming so we stay aligned with Jesus. So that's the first concept. Here's the second concept that Jesus gives us to help us. And that is we thrive through resistance by advanced preparation. If you're prepared for something to come that's hard, you're going to be ready for it when it comes. And he lays it out for us uh, really straightforwardly here in the next verse. He says, when the counselor comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Now, Spirit, God's sending the Spirit in the world. He's going to do some work in the world to testify. Next week, we're going to unpack this. So Eric's going to be teaching next week, and he'll walk through the role of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit's actually working in the world and how you can tap into the Holy Spirit working in the world. But he goes on to say in verse 27, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So you've got to testify as well. So here's, here's what it looks like to have advanced preparation. That is committed to the mission of Jesus. Like we will testify. That is our commitment. And the reason why it's so important that you commit yourself, if you're a follower of Jesus, that I am going to be on mission, I'm going to proclaim the gospel, the reason why you have to decide that in advance is because that we all know that if we don't make a firm stand on our convictions under pressure, we will always compromise. Remember a number of years ago, uh, the big campaign to try to help kids have convictions and be prepared when they were approached by somebody trying to sell them drugs? Remember the name of the campaign? 
just say no, right? And so educators all over the nation and parents all over the nation sat their kids down and would actually role play with them. If somebody comes and says this, well, what if your friends say that? Well, what if this pressure comes on you? And they would actually get the child, the children to actually repeat that. No, what would you say? No, I'd say, no, what were they doing? Trying to prepare in advance a conviction or a commitment so that under pressure they would be prepared. And so if you're thinking to yourself, like, I know I should represent Jesus. I just don't know how. I don't know what I would do. I don't know what it looks like to testify. So, like, maybe if I get an opportunity, I'll do something. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. You've got to be prepared in advance. Jesus, I am in with you. And I realize that if I'm one of your followers, proclaiming your good news is critically important. And keep in mind that good news is not news. Unless it's shared. Like good news is not, if it's, if it's just news that you keep to yourself, that's just good thoughts. Like that's just good thoughts. It's not good news until it actually goes out, until it actually gets shared. And Jesus says, listen, you guys got to commit to the mission. And then he goes on to say, advanced pre- preparation is also being confident of the opposition. You just got to know that when you do, there are going to be people that oppose you. Look what he says in verse 16. He says, all this I've told you so that you will not go astray. The word astray there is the word to be scandalized. In other words, like when you first encounter somebody that rejects you because of your faith, I don't want you to think, oh, this is too hard. Oh, I must be doing something wrong. Like, oh, I don't know how to do this well. No, Jesus said, like, I don't want that to happen to you. And then he tells them, he says, they will put you out of the synagogue. To be put out of the synagogue in this context means not only are you cut off from religious life and religious ceremonies, but you're also cut off from relationships that the chance of anybody shopping at your business or keeping you employed, like you are now ostracized in that community. And he goes on to say, in fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And within a couple months of him uttering this statement, Saul, who later becomes Paul after his conversion, is presiding over the stoning of Stephen. Now, I'm talking a couple months And Paul thinks that he's doing God's will. So that's one of the reasons why when you you go all angry on people that disagree with you, keep in mind, many of them think that they're doing the, like they think they're doing the right thing. And so it doesn't help like when we as Christians get all like mean-spirited to people who maybe don't understand. Because what they actually need is not to experience and encounter what they perceive and actually have stereotyped you to be. Angry, cram it down their throat type people. But actually show them what Jesus showed them. That in the face of persecution, in the face of false accusations... Jesus didn't have to defend himself. Why? Because he was there to represent God. Okay? So persecution will come. And then he closes this section by saying, 
They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. So Jesus is saying, like, as long as I'm here, I'm taking it all. Like, it's all coming toward me, but when I leave, it's going to come toward you. So, let's talk about the state of the world. I just want to do this very quickly, even though we could spend days and days. So what is the state of the treatment of Christians in the world right now? The International Society for Human Rights, which is a secular group that studies religious persecution around the world, have concluded that 80% of all acts of religious discrimination in the world today are directed against Christians. 80%. Now let that sink in for a minute, because I want to expose a narrative that is a lie. Now if you're a college student or high school student, you probably heard or read this somewhere along the way. Maybe it's actively discussed in your peer groups. And that is that Christianity, over the course of history and currently, has been the biggest persecutor of marginalized groups. People who are saying that have no knowledge of history or an agenda because that's just factually not the case. Everything good in Western civilization today, human rights, anti-slavery, um, all of the things related to our hospital systems, education systems, like all of the good that's happening was not present before Jesus came onto the scene. The world did not exist that way. And today, through the forward steady march of the people of God, not the governments, but the people of God continuing to push forward the morality and the values of Jesus, the world has been transformed for the better. So people who are turning that around and trying to find a connection to say that Christianity is the problem, like that's an example of what Jesus was talking about here. The hatred's not coming from truth. It's coming from spiritual warfare. And there are a lot of people that are duped on this. A lot of people. Think about it this way. 2.2 billion Christians on the planet. Largest group of any group, any identifiable group, 2.2 billion Christians on the planet. Now, why would 80% of the persecution be focused on Christians when the 2.2 billion, if they wanted to, could simply turn around and like force their thing on everybody else, right? Like it just doesn't make sense that the majority would be persecuted. Well, it's not just coming from the human rights group. Former chief rabbi of the United Kingdom said the suffering of the Middle East Christians, particularly in Syria at the time, was one of the crimes against humanity of our time. And he compared it to the riots and attacks against Jews throughout Europe and said he was appalled at the lack of protest it has evoked. Now, this is a Jewish rabbi comparing the persecution against Christians to what happened to the Jews. 
I mean, most people don't even remember that back in the early 1900s, in order to rid Turkey of Christians, the land where Paul planted all these churches, the the cradle of Christianity um, in the Armenian genocide, between 1.2 and 1.5 million people were exterminated. A genocide directed right at Christians. Whoever even talks about that? Most of us don't even read about it in our history books. The Catholic Patriarch of Jerusalem asked, does anybody hear our cry? How many atrocities must we endure before somebody somewhere comes to our aid? Does that ever make the headlines? that ever make the headlines? Pope Benedict said this. I'll put it up here so you can see it. He said, we might have to part with the notion of a popular church. Think about that. That anybody would think positively about the church, that the church is a public place where people can go. He said, it is possible that we are on the verge of a new era in which the church will continue only in the form of small and seemingly insignificant groups, which yet will oppose evil with all their strength and bring the good news to this world. Now, looking forward, he was saying that the church, as we know it, might not exist in the future. And some of you would say, that would just be, like, terrible. That would just be, like, terrible, right? Except in two of the countries where the church is exploding, Iran and Afghanistan, they don't have a popular church. It's disciples of Jesus, just like you, who are gathering together in small groups and aggressively in the face of torture and death, spreading the good news, and the desperation of people. They're coming to faith in droves. The church of Jesus Christ will survive anything that politicians can throw. But... I do believe that not only is this a global phenomenon, I believe that it's moving across the Western world as well and the United States. I mean, I've given a lot of time pondering about the possibility that sometime in my life I may end up in prison because I simply state or read what the Bible says. And the criminalization of speech has opened the door for people to begin to say, if you say something that we don't agree with, then you need to be removed so nobody else will believe what you're saying. So I personally, like, I'm coming to grips with that, but that could happen in my lifetime, and I believe it will happen in the lifetime of the next generation. That's why Jesus said, you guys need to be prepared for this, so that you're not surprised that you stay with the mission and keep moving forward with it. So to wrap up today, I just want to do something to kind of pull you in. So FaithWorks has put together, as they've studied persecution around the world, both soft persecution, what, what they call squeeze persecution, kind of pressure on people, and on the other side, smash where they actually come in and smash you. I'm I'm curious for you to identify, like, what is the level for your faith, not just for your attitude, but for your faith, following Jesus, your lifestyle, sharing your faith, kind of 
what is the level that you have it personally experienced? So let's, let's just do it this way. So degrees of persecution, starting at the softest, disapproval, ridicule, pressure to conform. I would say stop me when we get to yours, but um, you don't have to say that. Just think it in your head, okay? Loss of educational opportunities. Can't go through that training, can't take that promotion, can't get into that institution, can't be part of that school. Economic sanctions, shunning, no longer part of this group. Alienation from community, loss of employment, loss of property, physical abuse, mob violence, harassment by officials, kidnapping, forced labor, imprisonment, physical torture, murder, or execution. Did you find yourself on that list? Does it speak to your public engagement with Jesus as you interact with people in the world? Keep in mind, Jesus lived his life in public. People heard what he said. They saw what he did. He was a public person. We as Christians are called to be public people where we live our faith in our day-to-day life as Jesus intended for us to do that. So I had this vision, and this vision is one that's haunted me for years and years and years. And it's like, um, it's kind of like being in a football stadium, this massive stadium at the end of time, and where we're celebrating and Jesus is crowned king and we're all there in the stadium. And maybe the stadium is set up in this interesting way where the first section around the stadium, maybe that's the first century Christians. That would be the apostles, the early church, the ones that suffered such intense persecution with all of the apostles being killed except for John and he was imprisoned. And the persecution that took place there, second century, where you got the intensity of people like Nero and so forth, and the intensity of that group in the third century when the church finally started coming around and becoming a little bit more popular. But then you go to the fourth, fifth, and sixth century churches where the evangelization took place in Europe through all of the the Germanic tribes as missionaries were sent out and as captives brought the faith to those people under dire circumstances. And you follow your way around to you you get to the, the global mission missionary movement where the Moravians would send their children as missionaries to lands far away on ships and they would pack their belongings in coffins because they knew that wherever they were going, they would die there. They would never make it home. Disease, persecution, famine. When I get around us, 21st century, Where for many of us, retiring with a nest egg, playing golf, making sure our kids get in the best university, having a nice car, great vacations. I just think that it's possible that in the face of Jesus and in the face of the persecuted church and all they did to get the gospel to us, we may hang our heads a bit. 
And here's what happens in my vision. That Jesus looks up into that group of people and sees the folks of Hill Country Bible Church. And says, in the city of Austin, these people took it seriously to saturate the city with the love of Jesus. And they bent their lives toward mission. And maybe, just maybe, on that day, as a church, we would hear, well done. Y'all went all in. And my prayer is that that would be me and that would be you. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, I just thank you for a picture, a picture of what will happen as we live in a world antagonistic to you. Father, at the same time, we still enjoy incredible freedom. May we use this freedom as an opportunity to advance the good news that you, our loving God, forgiveness is available and that Jesus Christ is the answer. Thank you, Father. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you listen. To experience everything we have to offer, visit us online at hcbc.com. And as always, thank you for listening to the Hill Country Bible Church Podcast.